Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Yining Chang, and with me today is Dr. Sarah Salim, who's going to tell us about her new book, Anti-Colonial Afterlives in Egypt, The Politics of Hegemony. Sarah Salim is an assistant professor in sociology at the London School of Economics. Her research interests include political sociology, post-colonial studies, Marxist theory, and global histories of anti-colonialism. Her recently published book with Cambridge University Press is entitled Anti-Colonial Afterlives in Egypt, The Politics of Hegemony. A selection of published journal articles include on Angela Davis in Egypt in the Journal Science, on Franz Fanon in Egypt's Postcolonial State in Interventions, a Journal of Postcolonial Studies, on Gramsci and Anti-Colonialism in the Postcolony in Theory, Culture, and Society, and on Nasserism in Egypt through the lens of haunting in Middle East critique. Today, we're talking about her first book, Anti-Colonial Afterlives in Egypt. It builds this analysis of the afterlives of Egypt's moment of decolonization through an imagined conversation between Antonio Gramsci and Franz Fanon around questions of anti-colonialism, resistance, revolution, and liberation. In the book, she argues that the Nasserist project, which was created by Gamal Abdel Nasser and the Free Officers in 1952, remains the only instance of hegemony in modern Egyptian history. The 2011 revolution signified the end point of its decline decades after it was created. Nasserism, Salem argues, was made possible in and through local, regional, and global anti-colonial politics, even as it reproduced colonial ways of governing that reverberate into Egypt's present. The book explores these tensions through Gramsci and Fanon, foundational theorists of anti-capitalism and anti-colonialism, and, do, and in doing so, the book engages with some of the problematics around applying Gramsci's thought in contexts such as Egypt and thinking about Fanon's writing in relation to anti-colonialism today. Sarah, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm good. Thank you so much for having me. It's, it's great to have you here. Um, congratulations, somewhat belatedly, on the publication of your first book. Thank I wonder you. if you yeah. could start us off by telling us about yourself, where you grew up, where you went to school, what you think made you eventually become interested in the things you study today? Yeah, it's such an interesting question. Um, I think, actually, when I finished this book, it became really clear to me how my own kind of upbringing and experiences when I was younger shaped a lot of what I became interested in. So, uh, I mean, my father is Egyptian and my mother is Dutch, and they actually met each other in Zambia, which is where I grew up. Um, So I lived most of my life there and then uh, moved to Egypt when I was um, 16 years old. And I did my undergraduate degree in Egypt and my graduate degree in the Netherlands. And Interestingly, I think it's this connection in my personal life between Zambia and Egypt that made me very interested in the politics of Pan-Africanism and the politics of connection within the African continent and also the politics of Nasserism itself, because I remember growing up in Zambia, Nasser was also quite a prominent figure 
uh, as kind of one of the heroes or leaders of the African anti-colonial moment. And I realized much later that trying to think about or understand kind of the multiple legacies of Nasserism across the world kind of was always something that I was interested in and clearly shaped a lot of what I ended up doing in the book itself. So yeah, it's interesting to think about how these moments early on kind of come out much later um, in your research. So yeah. And when it did start coming out um, later on in your research, how did how did you come to write anti-colonial afterlives? So the book is kind of loosely based on my dissertation, but the dissertation itself focused much more on Gramsci's work. So I did a lot more research using Gramscian concepts like hegemony and the historical bloc. Uh, I was really interested in particular in thinking about Egypt's 2011 revolution in connection to other moments in Egyptian history. I started my PhD in 2012. So, you know, the 2011 revolution was still really prominent and fresh and felt like something that was hard to avoid in, in, in doing scholarship in Egypt at the time. But at the same time, it seemed to me that although Gramsci was really interesting in providing that political economy lens and that lens, the Marxist lens that I think is really crucial in understanding the history of any post-colonial space. As I kind of started thinking about this as a book, I wanted to also think a bit more about the this tension that comes up in debates between Marxism and post-colonial theory. So what does it mean to use Marxist concepts in a post-colonial space? But also as I began to write the book itself, um, the work of not only post-colonial theorists, but especially uh, Fanon's work on dependency and capitalism in the post-colony became more and more central to the way I wanted to think about anti-colonialism. Um, and this is what led to this conversation between Gramsci and Fanon. I think linking this to this question of uh, how uh, upbringing and so on. I think there has always been this, it's always been an interest of mine to think about connections between spaces simply because a lot of my own childhood was about those connections and about thinking across spaces um, through these more intimate, uh, intimate family lives and so on. And I think this interest in anti-colonialism as almost this uh, movement that was very much a movement about connection. It was very much about solidarity it was very much about thinking internationally rather than just nationally. And so in some ways, I think there are these reverberations of um, how connectivity that might have been really present when I was younger, coming out much later in, in this interest in anti-colonialism. And of course, in addition to that, I think anti-colonialism was an interesting way of making sense of these connections between Zambia and Egypt, so where I grew up and, and where my family was from, um, both through the tensions that exist in this connection, but also through this kind of moment in the 50s and 60s where it seemed there was quite a hopeful idea of uh, uniting kind of the African continent around these ideologies of liberation, of socialism, and so on. So, yeah, I think I would say this idea of connection has always been something that's been very interesting to me. And anti-colonialism was such an interesting way of exploring that.
And you very much do start the book with this question of connection across spaces, right? Because um, Nasser is the towering, the looming figure in your work, but you don't begin with him. You actually begin with Gramsci in the book and soon after him, Fanon. So that's your introduction to your study of Egypt. Can you tell us more about um, your de that decision to open the book this way? Yes, I think that... I mean, I think one thing to say first is that a lot of studies, in my in my view of anti-colonialism, have often privileged the space of the nation state. I think nationalism has been such a dominant framework through which to understand the 50s and 60s in Egypt. But also, even if we think about contemporary Egypt, there's quite a lot of work that still situates the national frame as kind of the, the primary frame through which to understand politics or economics or um, resistance. And yet, to me, there's much more about anti-colonialism than this question of nationalism. So as important as nationalism was to many of these movements, there was a much more internationalist inflection that I wanted to bring attention to before kind of focusing on the very detailed analysis that comes in the chapters later. I think another reason for starting with Gramsci and Fanon is that the way I thought about the book was very much as an imagined conversation between these two thinkers and these two theorists. I often, in thinking about two theorists in the same book, thought, well, this is what Gramsci might say about hegemony, but what would Fanon respond to this? Or is this really how hegemony would work in a context that has been colonized or that's experiencing an anti-colonial moment? And that imagined conversation that was with me for such a long time seemed like the most um, kind of the most honest way of opening a book that was very much indebted to the work of these uh, incredible theorists and thinking about less about critiquing either of them or critiquing either canon which I think often happens in this debate between Marxism and post-colonialism, but actually focusing more on what Rahul Rao calls a reparative reading that sees um, a conversation between theorists from both of these traditions as actually really productive and a, a nice way to kind of start a book that is very much about um, Egypt. I think a final thing I would say is that as, as many of us will know, when we focus on a particular context in the global South, there's often a tendency to then be understood as an area studies scholar or as a scholar of that particular place. I, I don't think that I necessarily think that there's a problem with that, but I do think there is a reproduction of Eurocentrism sometimes in understanding scholars of, you know, Western contexts as theorists or as you know, producing theory, whereas scholars of kind of global South context are producing an empirical case study. And this has been especially the case, I think, in disciplines such as politics or international relations. So to me, in thinking about this book, I wanted to really emphasize that it is a book about Egypt, but it's also a book about theory, about post-colonialism, about Marxism, and, uh, and so on. And that there's a lot in these contexts that speak to these kind of grand, grand theoretical traditions. And after that introduction um, grounded in these grand um, theoretical traditions, you section the book into two main parts. The uh, part one is anti-colonialism and its discontents, and part two is hegemony and its afterlives. And you track the history of Egyptian politics between 
1952 and 2011, but as I understand it, um, not in a typical way. So how did you structure the book? How do you track that history? What were the historiographical interventions you were looking to make? That's a great question. I think the structure of the book was something that really came right at the end and something I, I struggled with quite a lot. I think a lot of conventional understandings or even the way we're told about history in Egypt tends to periodize um, the 50s to 2011 through who was in power. So you have these very three kind of distinct eras where you have Gamal Abdel Nasser, Sadat, and Mubarak as kind of these um, these three moments. And I think what I was interested in is what you also lose when you think about time in that particular way. So are there continuities that we might miss when we think that there's a dis, you know a rupture between one leader and another? Or similarly, are there ruptures that might be happening but that we're not seeing because we're understanding ruptures at, as happening at um, very particular points? So one thing that I was interested in was maybe shaking up this, this linear trajectory idea that we have these moments that are always characterized by who's in power. And less who's in power as a political system, but who's in power really as a, as an individual person. So to me, as I began writing the book, it became clear that although I was trying to destabilize this transition, these transitions, it also seemed to me that the Nasserist period in particular, if we understand it through when he became president to when he passed away, uh, was distinctive or what I what I would call singular in some ways. And this is where this concept of hegemony comes in. It seemed to me to be a particularly powerful political project. Um, but also it was a political project that didn't begin with 1952, that I think actually began much earlier and was very much uh, built through the kind of radical energies of anti-colonialism that began in the early 20th century. But I also think it wasn't, uh, a project that ended with the death of Nasser, but that actually started to end a bit earlier than that, particularly uh, 1967 and the defeat to Israel. So in starting to write about these different moments, I want, I began to play a little bit with these dates. So with this idea that it was 1952 to 1970, is it that we might see the beginning and end at different points? But also, is it that what does it mean to say that a particular project has ended? And in what ways does a project like Nasserism both end and continue in uh, in different ways? I think the other thing um, to say about the periodization or the ways in which we might think about temporality and history is that, to me, hegemony became the central way in which I understood uh, time or which in which I understood different moments in Egyptian history. So once I wanted to argue that the Nasserist project was a hegemonic project, um, I also began to think about how the political projects that came afterwards were very much either a response to it or um, a repression of it, or in some ways, uh, a reaction to, to Nasserism itself and the power that Nasserism had had. And that's where this idea of hegemony and then its afterlife came in. So really thinking about how hegemonic projects, because of how powerful they are, never really end, even when we can see that you know some of their power is lost. And what does it mean to think about the ways in which the projects that came afterwards lived 
uh, either in the shadows of this hegemonic project that had just ended or even how they were almost haunted by some of the achievements of, of this project or also the social violence that was unleashed by it. And that's where this idea of maybe thinking about both hegemony and how it was created, but also hegemony and how it kind of fell apart as a different way of thinking about temporality and, um, and history. And I would imagine that one of the tensions in wanting to destabilize that periodization of Egyptian history is that so much of this does kind of coalesce around Nasser, right? He's this obviously huge figure with the, t- with the long shadow in the book. Um, but I come away from the book with a sense that it's not meant to be a book about Nasser, um, but to an extent it has to be. So how did you navigate this problematic, this tension in the book? How do you, how do you think about how much of Na- the Nasserist project and its afterlife is invested in Nasser, the, the person? How much of, um, how, how did you want to tell that story? Yeah, I think in some ways, the figure of Nasser almost haunts the book itself because I think in many ways it could have also easily been a book about Abdel Nasser as a figure, as a symbol, as um, or even as a ghost that is still present in, in contemporary Egyptian politics. And I think there was always a constant tension between is this a book about Abdel Nasser and the 1950s, or is this a book about uh, this trajectory between 1952 and 2011? It's interesting because uh, when I first submitted the manuscript, um, one of the reviewers' comments was that it's, it seems to be a book about Nasser. Like the parts that come after are almost like um, additional sections that are there but are not are not obviously not argued or not as as extensive as the the, the sections on Abdel Nasser. And that made me think quite a lot about what are those sections trying to do then? Is it that this maybe is just a book about this anti-colonial moment? So I feel like I don't have an answer to this tension. I think it is it is a tension in the book. And I think that in some ways, it demonstrates what the book is trying to argue, which is that Abdel Nasser was a much bigger figure than the figures that we might see afterwards. He was a figure around which an entire political project was created that had these multiple dimensions. And in some ways, a hegemonic project in and of itself is always going to be a much more complex and detailed project. And so the space that it takes up in the book makes sense from that perspective. And yeah, in my mind... These, uh, these sections that are the kind of afterlife of hegemony almost are also a representation of the projects that came after, which as some have said were not projects. They weren't even what we might call political projects. They were really much smaller than that. Um, so I wonder, maybe I kind of tell myself to make to, to feel better that the way the book is, is almost a representation of the argument, which is that there is something powerful and contradictory about Abdel Nasser that consumes you when you start to think about it um, versus what came after. It's almost like you have to include this as part of the story. And it is part of the story, but it's not the main character of the story. And when you explore um, that, that, that powerful um, project um, in its prime, um, when, when that exploration really gets going in the second chapter, 
it revolves around the Gramscian antinomy of coercion and consent, but it does seem to come down heavier on consent than on coercion. If, if that's a fair reading um, of your second chapter, I wonder how um, what that helps you access in your reading of the Nasserist project, but also um, of the international moment beyond Nasser and beyond Egypt. Yes, I think that is definitely a fair reading. I think my assessment of the Nasserist project and of actually, you know, the third worldist movement is precisely that it was heavier on consent than coercion, but that this is important for us to think about and acknowledge because it might have a lot to tell us about the role of ideology and the role of particular economic and political um, structures in creating consent or in creating um, systems that people see themselves in. So I think the the dialect, the coercion consent dialectic was really probably the most important dimension of hegemony that I found in Gramsci's work. I think it was one of those moments where I saw something and it just made so much sense to think about uh, the particularities of politics through this dialectic. Um, I think it's worth noting that, of course, it's hard to separate sometimes things into consent or coercion. Uh, and even this question of ideology, it's not as simple as saying this, you know, Pan-Africanism was an ideology that was about consent, because in many ways, ideologies can also have coercive functions. And so in some ways, it's more of a spectrum than than a binary. At the same time, I think for me, the power of Nasserism and thinking about Nasserism as a hegemonic project was precisely that it was able to cultivate very high levels of consent. And this was done both through the historical world historical moment in which it emerged. So I do think that there's something about that particular moment that made it possible, um, whether that's because Egypt itself was engulfed in anti-colonial movements, you know, for at least 30 or 40 years before this moment, or whether it's because this was the moment of third worldist revolution. Uh, it was a very different international moment than the one we're in now, for example. So whether it's the coming apart of these empires, um, this huge project of nation building and post-colonial nation building, or even the power of the, the discourse of socialism that existed at, at this moment. I mean, this was a moment in which capitalism as an idea was very much also in crisis and very much, it was almost like there was an opening in the world at this time. So I think there's this question of the world historical moment in that sense. I think there's also at the same time, the project itself, so Abdel Nasser, the free officers, the government, you know, that emerges soon after, also invested a lot in creating consent. And I think that this is a really foundational point about this project is that it understood clearly the need to rule through consent. And that might seem kind of obvious, but obviously, as we know, many, many political projects don't necessarily think that that's an investment that should be made and that coercion will kind of keep things going. But for Nasser, I think there was a clear understanding that we need to, we need all these spaces in society that are creating this project and that make people feel that this, this project is a national project. It's a project that belongs to everybody. And whether that's through, you know, these popular radio stations like Voice of the Arabs, whether it's through conferences and solidarity activities, 
uh, whether it's through the educational system, all these different spheres suddenly become um, a part of this consent making. So to me, that says a lot about how the political project itself understood what it means to rule uh, successfully or to be able to, to rule in a way that isn't just dependent on coercion. Now, I think sometimes there is this idea that consent making is the, sa- the same as almost brainwashing or almost like, yeah, that there's some level of it's a top-down process. And I also think that what's really interesting about Gramsci's understanding of consent and common sense and so on is actually that it's not that simple, that many people um, see themselves in certain ideologies or see the future of the nation in certain ideologies and respond to them in a way that we might understand as uh, a top-down process or a form of buyout or and so on, but that actually are much more than that. And I think this is another important characteristic of this historical moment is that these projects of anti-colonial nationalism, of liberation, of Arab or African socialism, were also mobilizing ideas and hopes and dreams that many people did have already or did already kind of see as part of their own imagination of the future or imagination of what a world after empire might look like. And I think it's this coming together or this overlap between what these projects were based around and what many, you know, millions of people saw also as their own project um, that makes it a moment that was very much also based on consent. At the same time, uh, coercion it the dialectic itself was also really helpful in trying to make sense of also the violence that was part of many of these projects so to me what was very interesting about this you know relationship between consent and coercion is that hegemony also has and can have very high levels of coercion and i thought that you know that again was this moment of like okay this this is helping me understand something because a lot of the critiques, obviously, of these post-colonial state projects is that they were very dependent on coercion, whether that's through imprisoning you know, communists, whether it's through the ways in which they try to impose subjectivities, modern subjectivities, all of these different things that have been written about in lots of amazing ways. So how to make sense of, okay, you're arguing there are these high levels of consent, what is the coercion doing? But it's precisely the point that the high levels of consent are able to legitimize so much of the coercion. And, you know, for Gramsci, this is what, this is why hegemony is actually a a really, a thing every state should aim for, because it allows for coercion, it allows for capitalist exploitation without resistance, because the consent is often masking or justifying the coercion that's happening. So in the second half of the book, um, you turn towards what you call the afterlives of, Na- um, of Nasserist hegemony. Um, it seems to me here that one of the things the concept of afterlives does for you is it lets you move through the thorny question of post-colonial success and failure. Um, and I want to turn to this to this thorny question um, for, for a bit. Um, the Nasserist project failed in a sense, it collapsed, but Nasserism's success at creating hegemony was never replicated, and it continued to exert a ghostly influence after the collapse of the project proper. That's your that's your argument. Um, 
And I would just wonder whether there's an underlying agreement here with scholars such as David Scott, who have called for post-colonial studies to move past the question of, post-colonial, uh, of whether post-colonial projects succeeded or failed in overcoming colonialism. Um, I mean, do you take that view? Is that, is that something that informs the way you, you approach this book? Definitely. Um, And it's interesting that you asked this question of success and failure, because it's also a question that has become so prominent in the aftermath of the uh, revolutions of 2010 and 2011 in North Africa and the Middle East. And, you know, over the last few days, because of course, you know, the 10, the the one decade anniversary of this began on, on January 25th for Egypt. And so, found myself having a lot of these conversations with friends about the frustration of this question that keeps coming up, you know, which is that, okay, so the revolution clearly failed. Um, What's next? Or is this even something we can call a revolution? And I think the frustration that many, at least Egyptians feel with this is that it's very difficult to capture what a revolution does. And this binary of success and failure is almost an attempt to really narrow down what was a momentous and life-changing event for so many people into, you know, two categories that are very difficult to quantify or very difficult to um, make sense of. And so that's a similar feeling I have with this question of post-colonial state failure and success. I think on the one hand, I prefer to think of the end of the Nasserist project as a moment in which the project came apart or fell apart. Um, and I think even the question failure, the, the term failure, although I think I do use it in the book, it's probably one today that I wouldn't use. I think questions like, de- or words like defeat, um, coming apart or ending almost are more useful at making sense of what happened at that moment. And similarly, I think the question of success also raises so many other questions about what what it would mean for a post-colonial state project to have been successful. It depends so much on what we think post-colonial projects should have been, and there's still so much debate about this. Is it that we would have wanted a project that was socialist? Um, Is it that we wanted a project that thought more carefully about gender and other forms, other intersections, what would a successful post-colonial project have been? And, you know, maybe we have some in in the world. It's, it's, It's very difficult once we use those types of definitions to also agree on what is meant by those um, definitions. So I think very much like David Scott, I wonder if a lot of the energy spent on debating success and failure can instead be uh, kind of directed towards thinking, well, what is the aftermath of this moment? Um, what is it that these revolutions left in the in the present? In what ways did those revolutions bring about change? Or in what ways did they try to bring about change and were unable to for, you know, a whole host of reasons? And so, Coming back to 2011, I think for many people, those revolutions changed everything, even while, you know, from a different perspective, they might have changed very little. So it's very interesting to think beyond kind of these kind of neat questions that are in a way addressing moments that are not neat at all and are very messy and are ongoing. So 
to me, this idea of afterlives, this idea of haunting, or even this idea of thinking about the past from the vantage point of a revolution in the present gives gave me a bit more space to explore the contradictory kind of afterlives that these projects had. In some ways, they did have very important ramifications on how resistance was framed. Um, like I say in the book, especially the Nasserus project, you know, its introduction of social welfare or its introduction of guaranteed employment, these were changes that other political projects had to either replicate or faced resistance if they didn't replicate them. So there were these obviously clear shifts that happened that continued to have effects into the present. But also, and this is something I'm thinking about much more now, I wonder if we turn to kind of the realm of emotions or viscerality or um, memory or the way we remember the past. These revolutionary moments are very powerful in how they shift or transform the way we might think about what's possible or the way we might think about um, the future. And I think that's definitely an afterlife that uh, is really crucial in thinking about that moment of, of third worldism. Another way in which um, you think about third worldism and you think about that moment in the book, it seems to me, um, is finance capital. And in a way, finance capital bookends this project, right? You start out with Bank Misra, um, which you call the prehistory of 1952, and you end with the emergence of the financial ruling class in the 1990s. Um, so I wonder if you can tell us a little bit more about the role of finance capital in the story that you tell and how it brings together the national and the international for you. Definitely. I think the role of finance capital is such an interesting lens through which to both trace colonial capitalism and the particular ways in which colonialism impacted economic systems across the global south very early on and especially the way it structured uh, economic systems. And at the same time, finance capital is often something that we might identify as very contemporary. It's something that's recent. It's, you know, today we hear so much about the financialization of everything. And even in places like Egypt and the Gulf, there's a lot of debate around this question of finance capital. What was really interesting to me about the Bank Mister example is that the structure in which uh, colonialism is able to determine uh, investments, the structure in which colonialism is able to determine exports and imports, uh, the ways in which a particular class is cultivated through the availability or unavailability of capital, but above all, kind of the dependency that we see in Egypt at that moment on foreign capital, I mean, just before the emergence of Bank Master, on foreign capital to me was, you know, there's this moment of deja vu where it's like, well, this is exactly the situation we're in today. So what is it that happened in between? Or what is it that might create these cyclical uh, experiences with with something like finance capital? Bank Mesra was an interesting moment in Egyptian history because the emergence of this bank was very much uh, an indication that for Egyptian nationalists, they understood the problems of this dependency on foreign capital. And it was very much in its initial stages an attempt to break away from this and to fund or fund investments through national capital instead. So very much an awareness that this dependency on, you know, it was mostly European capital 
creates certain effects that make it very difficult to break away from kind of the way the global capitalist system is organized. And so it's quite an early example of this uh, attempt to break this form of dependency. Of course, in many ways, it was unsuccessful and after some time began again to depend largely on foreign capital. The reason Bank Mister is so interesting to me is that uh, this problem of the dependency on foreign capital is one that you see recur throughout Egyptian history. And that, again, today is is really one of the central problems still facing the Egyptian economy. It's, on the one hand, it's a clear kind of, um, kind of brings back these memories of dependency theory and world systems theory that clearly there's still, there's a structure in place that produces this uneven form of capitalism and this extractive form of capitalism. But on the other hand, there's also a suggestion that there has almost always been resistance to to this, or there's almost always been a recognition that this form of um, organizing an economic system is contradictory to kind of nationalist goals or, or, or goals of liberation. I think what we see in the 1950s with Abdel Nasser is a maybe more... Um, a stronger attempt to challenge this. So, of course, foreign capital was one of the first things that this new government uh, targeted. It very much was trying to get rid of this land-owning elite that was dependent on foreign capital and replace it with an elite made up of technocrats and bureaucrats that, although, you know, some have argued this was just replacing one class with another, there is a significance in the fact that this new class was a class dependent on the state and on state capital. So in some ways, what we see with Nasserism is a shift away from a dependency on foreign capital and on onto national capital or state capital as kind of the key, um, key basis of economic transactions. Obviously, there's a lot of debate about how this fared in the long term. So we know that by the mid-1960s, Egypt was in a huge economic crisis. And I think here, again, work by, you know, dependency theorists or Marxists have shown that, again, when individual countries attempt to make this type of a shift, it's very difficult when the global system itself is still operating um, very much on this uneven, in, in this uneven way. So there's a lot of debate about where this, how much could have changed without a global transformation as well. And we know in many parts of the post-colonial world, similar shifts also kind of came apart in the 60s and 70s, by which time we have this emergence of the Washington Consensus and the neoliberal kind of counter-revolution. So to me, Bank Misra and, and Nasser were these moments of almost a break in this reliance on foreign capital. From the 70s onwards, you really see a very slow kind of increase in the presence of foreign capital again. So Sadat's project was very much about, I mean, it was called Infitah, which is literally opening up, (laughs) opening up to the world, which was, again, this idea of opening up the economy. So you see this, you know, gradual transformation, finance, capital becomes increasingly prominent, especially in the fields of real estate, uh, luxury goods, import, export, and so on. And, you know, to some extent, this was moderated up until the 1990s, where you really see a massive intensification of privatization, of uh, speculation of all of these very unstable kind of um, forms of, of economic relationality. 
to me, and I and you know, scholars like Adam Hane have done such amazing work on this. By the 2000s, and you know, especially if we look at Egypt today, I think it really it's almost a majority of investments are coming from foreign capital. Again, now most of that is from the Gulf, so there is a shift, an important shift, obviously. Although you know, the connection between the Gulf and Western capital is not it's not that they're opposites, but we find ourselves again in the situation in which there is a form of dependency that becomes very difficult to navigate politically, socially, and economically. And that begins to really determine the type of politics that's present in the country. So to be the story of finance capital is a really interesting way of also charting these shifts in economic projects, because even in the two projects that come before 2011, although they're both quite dependent on privatization, on neoliberal reform, structural adjustment, it's really the second one where, you know, Mubarak, Hosni Mubarak's son and kind of this new emerging cabinet of businessmen, it's really at that moment that you see an acceleration of financialization that kind of bring brings about the instability that was very much part of 2011. So finance capital is almost an interesting searchlight or tool through which to chart some of these bigger changes, I think, in elite structure, in kind of societal understandings of um, the economy, and also in resistance, I would say. And that's where you come in for a landing um, at the end of the book. Um, You arrive at the neoliberal consensus. And there is a point there um, when you suggest that for Egypt, getting haunted by the Nazareth project has actually slowed down the encroachment of neoliberalism. And I mean, this is something of an obvious connection, but I can't help but think about the other recent works that also follow this trajectory, you know, mirroring opening and closure opening with the anti-colonial moment and closing with the neoliberal moment. So when you turn to Egypt's past, was there a certain longing, a certain desire for a way out of the neoliberal moment for you personally? I think so. I think, I mean, this is something that um, I've thought a lot about is also the role of kind of nostalgia and the role of um, longing for a past that in some ways didn't necessarily even exist, but it's a projection of, of, of a particular understanding of what that moment could have been almost. And to me, when I think about even my own nostalgia for that period or my own longing for that period, it's very much a nostalgia for the possibilities that I think were opening up at that time. Possibilities that maybe were partially fulfilled um, I mean, even when I think about my own family, you know, there were so many members of my own family, including my dad, who was only able to go to university because of changes that happened under Abdel Nasser. So the opening up of, you know, free education and so on. So I think it's not that there was no basis uh, for which to be nostalgic for. But at the same time, I think uh, nostalgia is often also this weird blurring between past and present and future where you can sometimes be nostalgic for a moment in which a different future was possible, especially when you're in a moment now where actually that future seems completely impossible. I think it's very hard to imagine, I don't know, a future in which we have socialism (laughs) today. Uh, And so I wonder if that's part of 
the nostalgia for that time is is a time of possibility. Um, and yeah, it's such such a great question. I think that, well, ironically, this this idea that neoliberalism was a moment of opening. You know, I think for many people, probably they experienced it as a closure or as a coming. You know, an, an end to this hopeful, much more hopeful kind of time. But I do think that there's something in the quality of that nostalgia that has been important for resistance and important for critique of the present. So in the book, I talk a little bit about even when we look at the workers' strikes or workers' mobilizations that happened in the 2000s, and these were strikes with you know millions and millions of people, they often mobilized this idea of what the, what the state had been unlike under in the 50s and 60s that they had had better work conditions um, things weren't being privatized left right and center and so to me there is a haunting quality in that people's perceptions of what that moment had been continue to condition uh, the pos- limits of possibility for neoliberalism itself in the present I think which is quite an interesting thing to think about and time is obviously, I mean, it's obviously everywhere in, in, in this conversation and it's everywhere in the book. Um, and I want to kind of draw it together at this point um, and ask you about how exactly you think about the concepts of afterlife and haunting in this book. Because um, one way that sometimes the concept of afterlives has been interpreted is that it actually reinforces chronological movement of time because there is there is an, there is an ending and then there is an after. But that's not, um, it strikes me that that's not how you think about time in this book. Um, and you want to blur um, the tenses. You want to um, show how past, present, and future kind of get mixed up. So how does the concept of afterlife and haunting um, do that work for you? So I think that, I mean, I think in some sense the book, uh, even though it's trying to escape kind of chronological time, I think does reproduce it in some ways. And that's something that I um, find still quite difficult to do because in some sense, uh, even when we delineate these as political projects, there is still an idea that, you know, these projects spanned a particular period of time that they began and they ended and all of those things that I think do somehow reproduce this, this, a a chronology of sorts, even if it's a different chronology. To me, I think coming to the idea of how the past lives in the present was something that came really towards the end of the book. And I think, you know, it comes up mostly in the conclusion because it was something that helped me conclude the book, even though it wasn't present throughout the whole writing process. But I was really struggling with how can we make sense of 1952 in 2011. Um, I've made this argument that, of course, there are maybe these longer processes that led to 2011 that we can date back quite far. But for me, the idea of haunting captures a viscerality or um, an almost effective way in which memories of the past influence the present. And that's what I really wanted to capture with that and with the idea of afterlife. So less these questions of institutions. So, how, you know, and there's a lot of work on how, for example, the military institution today is a product of the military institution in the 50s. And I was less interested in those trajectories and much more in how feelings or 
experiences or memories of Nasserism continue to seep into the present in very unexpected ways and actually in ways that are not easy to chart or to write about, but that you kind of feel are there. And to me, this is whether it's because you could see his face on posters in 2011, um, whether it's because we still have Nasserist political parties in some parts of the region, but all of these interesting ways in which he kind of crops up was what I was trying to capture, I think, with these two concepts. I also was quite interested in how this idea of afterlives or, or haunting both speak to third worldism in general as as a project that clearly was much more monumental than is often often given credit for i think there's still quite so much work to be done on this moment but also as a moment that i think we remember through things like nostalgia through things like hope or even if it's through hate or antipathy you know so you know abdel nasser in egypt is a really polarizing figure and you really do have a lot of people who who have a, a very negative reaction to him. So, but even then it's this, it's the power of feeling that we often have towards these projects that I thought, well, how can we capture this? What are ways in which um, those memories live in the present and do things in the present? Um, and so I think that's kind of what I was trying to get at there. And the really striking thing about that, for me at least, is that um, as you talk about the past being in the present, kind of suffusing, filling the present, you actually use the term empty time to describe what was happening in um, in the 1980s to mid-1990s. So tell us more about your concept of empty time and how it connects with these questions of haunting and afterlife and what work it does in your project. Yeah, so empty time, I think... To me, there was this very interesting moment in the 1970s where you have this coming apart of a very powerful hegemonic project, but you don't really have an alternative yet. And, you know, Gramsci has this great quote where he's like, um, in this interregnum, it's a period in which the old is dying and the new cannot be born yet. So to me, that was kind of Egypt in the 1970s and probably a lot of places because that is this shift from um, this global anti-colonial moment to the neoliberal moment. But to me, empty time captured the, the absence of a political project and the absence of hegemony in, in a way that suddenly you're in this vacuum where the emotion, the power, the the connection that many people felt to obviously to the Nasserist project or to Nasser himself suddenly is gone, you know, and is gone in also quite a violent way in the sense that the 1967 defeat was such a shock as well. It was such a national moment of shock. And to me, it felt like there was a lot of processing that was also happening at that moment. So empty time was a way of visualizing well what are what are these moments in which of course things are happening and and lives are being lived but we don't see we don't see something being built or challenged yet it's really this moment of okay what is coming next and um how can we make sense of the absence of hegemony as well as the presence of it or an attempt to build hegemony but actually these moments where there's nothing people are just 
processing the kind of collapse of, of what was obviously a very monumental project. But I think just to, to end that, I think this idea of temporality is really fascinating to me. And I think it's something that came a bit later in this book, but it's something I'm thinking about quite a lot now is how do we play with temporality itself, you know, and not just by blurring past, present and future, although I think that's really crucial, but also in thinking about what the quality of time is. Um, is all time the same? Does all time feel the same? Um, there's something about the anti-colonial time that was very much a, about a tempo or, or a movement towards something. And then suddenly you have this collapse where, to me, the idea of time being empty was a really kind of interesting way of thinking of the quality of the time itself. In that, you mentioned um, the question of what comes next and what comes after. Um, and in the final chapter, um, you explore this through the, um, through the question of mastery. And you describe Nasserism as harboring an ambition to master the future. And the book kind of holds this ambition responsible for the, some of the contradictions of the post-colonial project. And at the very end, you push your reader to contemplate a vision of futurity that isn't grounded upon mastery of the future. I wonder if I could you know, hear more from you about whether that it's the moment we're living in. Is the task now to find a new way to relate to the future? Definitely. I mean, I think this book on thinking mastery by Julieta Singh was has been so transformative in in thinking about everything. Not only, I mean, the book itself is about anti-colonial mastery and this idea that even the most radical anti-colonial projects still harbored these. Um, even if they're unconscious desires to master something, whether it's mastering land, mastering subjectivity, mastering the self, the future. And she she kind of invites us to think about what does it mean to let go of this need for mastery, which of course is still one of the kind of pivotal Eurocentric ways of being in the world, right? This uh, constant need to master everything that we're in relation to. Um I think we're in a moment now where it just seems so clear that we, it seems so clear on the one hand that we do need to think seriously about a possibility of a future without mastery or without forms of relationality that depend on control or ownership. So whether that's in relation to um, the earth, if we're thinking about the climate catastrophe we live in, so the ways in which we experience ourselves as humans in relation to non-human beings or the earth itself, um, or whether it's in relation to the way we think about work, the way we think about fulfillment and materialism. Clearly, the economic crisis that has started and is you know, definitely coming at the end of the, the pandemic or whenever the pandemic ends, I think will also push us to think a bit more about capitalism itself, obviously, as the ultimate form of mastery and, and how internalized it has been so that it took a pandemic for you know many of us including myself to really think carefully about how work the role that work plays in the way we understand ourselves at the same time it's a bit ironic that we're also in a moment where mastery is so we're so dependent on mastering this virus you know like the especially here in the UK you know all we're hearing now is that 
this is how many vaccinations were done today. Don't we know we need to get control of this virus? And I think this language of control, this language of um, mastering of kind of uh, we have to beat this is is also interesting in how even us as critical people might still be like, well, yes, we need to control this virus so we can go back to our lives. So it's an interesting moment in which we can see the the limits of mastery while also being quite dependent on states, especially, and, and, and pharmaceutical companies and the mastery they're trying to um, exert over a, a virus as, as something that we all kind of want, maybe even want on some level. So yeah, a lot to think about, I think. I think that's the that's the perfect way to come in for a landing at the end of the conversation. Um, we've, we've taken up so much of your time. Um, I just want to ask you one last question. Could you tell us what you're working on now? Where are you going next? Yes, so that's a good question. Um, I think there's quite a few things that I'm interested in uh, that are a bit diff- different from what I did with this book. I think this book was quite a materialist book in the sense that it was very much interested in political economy and political projects. I think what I increasingly became interested in as I was writing this was this question of emotion and this question of um, feelings such as nostalgia, hope, disappointment, and so on, as and how they're linked to the, the question of anti-colonialism as well. So that's something I'm really interested in exploring is thinking about the role of affect thinking about the role of almost you know structures of feeling and also creating these huge political moments and how a lot of those feelings kind of seep into the present or have memories of their own or create memories of their own um the other thing that i'm really interested in thinking about a bit more is again questions of connection so i just um i just published a piece that was looking at a project that was proposed uh, in the 1950s that was meant to build a railway from Cape Town to Cairo. And this was a project that has had multiple lives. It was also proposed by Cecil Rhodes at some point. It was eventually built in the 70s by um, the African Bank for Development uh, to facilitate neoliberalism. But I was really interested in this one moment in the 50s where it was an attempt to create connectivity across the continent between people rather than between goods or between um, for, you know, for capitalist aims. And I was, yeah, I've been thinking a lot about the role of infrastructures, but also infrastructures that maybe were never built, but that can tell us something about how people imagined connectivity um, at that particular moment in the 1950s. And of course, what it might mean to think about Egypt in relation I mean, often we're, we're taught to think of Egypt in relation to the rest of the Middle East, but also, of course, the really strong forms of connection that existed between Egypt and the rest of the continent is something that I'm really interested in looking at a bit more. That sounds really exciting and fascinating. And I look forward to your coming publications. Thank you so much for being here today. Yeah, thank you so much. These were amazing questions. I really enjoyed this. <laughs> You've been listening to a conversation with Dr. Sarah Salim about her book, Anti-Colonial Afterlives in Egypt, The Politics of Hegemony, Cambridge University Press 2020. And you can find out more about the book by clicking on the bookshop link in the podcast description. 
I'm your host, Yining Chung, and I'll see you back on the next episode.